This message by Thabiti Anyabwile, entitled Expressing Emotion with the Psalmist, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the second general session at our Worship God 2008 conference. Thabiti serves as senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Grand Cayman in the Cayman Islands. Bob has folks um, coming up speaking in other languages and makes me want to speak in another language. So, that's about all I know. <laughs> I'm so thankful to be here. It's a joy to be here. It's always a joy to, to come to Covenant Life Church and to gather with the Sovereign Grace uh, Church family. I'm, I'm humbled at the invitation and I'm thrilled to be here. And I've been going through a range of emotions since last night. I um, had a slight panic attack. Last night I was sitting in the back there with one of the brothers and Mark Altrogi did the announcements and he ripped through Bob Coughlin and I was thinking, Lord, don't let him announce me. Don't let him introduce me. (laughs) And, And my concern was for you because Mark did his homework. He got a baby picture of Bob and I just thought, oh, if he shows a baby picture of me, it will clear the auditorium. (laughs) <laughs> face only a mother could love. <laughs> One of the most frequent things I have to do is repeat my name to people. Um, it's Thabiti Anyabwile. Not that you'll ever really say all of that in a conversation. My own folks even call me Pastor T, and that's fine. But sometimes people want to know how it's pronounced, and then they want to go further and know what it means. Loosely translated... It means, who's the uptight suit-wearing Baptist guy at this conference? (laughs) It's like, who invited him? (laughs) And I worried about that invitation too. I thought, there must be a conspiracy afoot. Why would the Sovereign Grace guys invite a Baptist guy to talk about emotions and worship? <laughs> and, and then when you know I spent several years at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which is a wonderful church, but not known for exuberant worship, it leaves you wondering. And then I knew, I figured out what the conspiracy was last night when I looked at the agenda. Because I'm speaking this morning, and Mark Dever, beloved friend, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, is speaking tonight. I said, oh, ah, that's it. They are minimizing the risk by having the uptight Baptist guy speak early in the conference. And so the next couple days, they can recover. That's genius, brother. That's genius. That's genius. It's well played. Good play. <laughs> well, we're talking this morning about emotions in worship. And you all see that this was a nine o'clock session. Right, show of hands for those who are not morning persons. Yeah, see, for you, the morning is just a means to lunch. <laughs> You are challenged with the very idea of being emotional this morning. I I appreciate you. I'm sorry that they didn't have coffee for you this morning. It would have helped me. Um, But I'm thankful that you got out of bed and that you made it. This is an important topic. This is a topic that's engaging lots of people and, and has engaged the Christian church for some time. Often, sadly without fruitfulness, without edification. How are we to worship? What what role does emotion play in worship? And this is is a subject that's not only sort of a conversation that's not only just going on inside Christian churches among worship pastors and worship leaders, but I wonder if you paid attention to the secular media of late. As an ongoing conversation in the secular world, in the world at large, about what it means to be happy. Now, if you believe most magazines, being happy means being wealthy, having two and a half kids, a large house, and rock hard abs. (laughs) 
I've not been happy for a long time, but I definitely... <laughs> the, the prevailing notion is that happiness is somehow connected with material prosperity. If you have more, then you're happier. It's striking. You know, I used to go to bookstores. Now I order most of my books online. And the reason, in part, was I'd be in the bookstores in, in the magazine aisle. And, and sure enough, almost every time I went to the bookstore, someone would come up and ask me a question as though they were interested in my life. You know, how are you? Where are you from? Tell me about your family. And then they'd get to the payload question. How would you like to earn $500 to $5,000 a month working 10 hours a week from home? So I learned to answer that question. Are you kidding? Man, I want to be homeless and walk the earth like Cain. <laughs> hey, leave you alone after that. They don't want your number or your email. They don't follow up. But the blessed life. You know, Time Magazine ran an article a little while ago called In Search of Happiness, In Pursuit of Happiness. And they were raising this question of what makes people happy and, and where are people looking for happiness? And the punchline of the entire article, I quote, is we are terrible at predicting the source of joy. Isn't that true? You stop and watch the world. One of the things you observe, one of the things we observe in our own lives is that we are sad, sad, sad predictors of what brings joy. We don't know where to find it. And according to The Economist, this, this must issue of The Economist, the entire country has the blues. It says there that the Washingtonian consensus told the world that open markets and deregulation would solve its problems. Yet American house prices are falling faster than during the Depression. Petrol is more expensive than in the 1970s. Banks are collapsing. The euro is kicking sand in the dollar's face. Credit is scarce. Recession and inflation both threaten the economy. Consumer, consumer confidence is an oxymoron. And Belgians have just bought Budweiser, America's beer. It's bad. If people are pursuing happiness, then it's clear that their pursuit is well obstructed. And what about the Christian? Is the Christian any better off in their search for joy and happiness? More to the point, what are we to do with the current emotional state of our people when they come into the meeting house, into the public worship setting, what are we to do in addressing their emotion? How do we engage them, the complete ball of emotion that we all are, effectively in the truth and the knowledge of God, our Savior? And to consider that, we want to look this morning at Psalm 73, an autobiographical psalm, rich in emotional expression and issue that teaches us a great deal about this question we're considering this morning. As we look at the psalm, I want to have us sort of meditate on two points and then draw our attention to a few applications. Point number one really is the point of verses 1 to 16 of the psalm. Man-centered emotions lead to despair. Man-centered emotions lead to despair. Point number two is that God-centered emotions lead to a singular love for Christ and eternal joy. God-centered emotions lead us to a singular love of Christ and eternal joy. Let's pray before we hear God's word. Lord, we've been singing your praises this morning and last evening. We have, Lord, been brought face to face, face with the glorious 
truth of your salvation through Christ Jesus, your Son. Father, we've been made to weep. and We've been made to laugh. We have, Lord, been engaged by your word and by your truth. Most of us. Some of us. Lord, we pray that you would tear the sky. And you would cause by your word to make the earth shake. That you would, Lord, grip us and immerse us in the truth. The glorious truth. That you have redeemed us. Heart, soul, body. To an eternal and glorious and everlasting joy in your presence. Lord, our hearts cry with the psalmist. We cry for that time when we shall awake, when we shall awake in the righteousness of Christ, and we shall see you and be satisfied. Grant us some measure of satisfaction by some glimpse of your glory even now. In Jesus' name. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I said I would speak thus, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, and I may tell of all your works. Well, the first thing we observe in our text is that man-centered emotion leads to despair. Again, we see that in the first 16 verses. Notice that Asaph begins in verse 1 by stating a good theological fact. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But we soon find that it's a case of head knowledge that hasn't quite captured his heart. In verse 2, 
reveals the psalmist's disconnect between heart and head. Notice the interjection, but. Pay attention to the three-letter words in Scripture. But, as for me. Now, when we start with good theology and follow it with the but, you know we're in trouble. It's an indication that we are objecting to the truth already stated. We are quibbling. We are arguing with truth. The theology is not making its way to application. The psalmist knows God is good to Israel and the pure in heart. He's a part of Israel. And if you look down at verse 13, he says he was pure in heart. So he should conclude what? God is good to me, right? But he doesn't. He thinks he's the exception to God's goodness. He's the lone exception in all of Israel. This is Asaph, the choir director. And that morning he's leading the people of God in a familiar tune. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows the sorrow. Self-pity. We know that emotion, don't we? And it's the kind of self-pity that rapidly grows in the soil of jealousy, envy. Notice verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph looks around at others and grows jealous at their prosperity and well-being. I mean, this psalm is prophetic. The psalm speaks to our time. One of the most prevailing theologies in the Christian church today is the prosperity gospel. The idea that if, if, if I do good, live a basically good life and believe on Christ and, and call upon Him, good stuff should happen to me. It's, it's a, it's a, in, in that sort of theology, it's, it's like the law of gravity. What goes up must come down. You know, who does good must receive good. Asaph seems to be afflicted with that assumption. And every Sunday morning, someone in our congregation comes into the church feeling envious of the better life of someone around them. Asking themselves, why do even non-Christians seem to have better lives than I do? Every Sunday morning, someone comes into our churches with their eyes full of the world's bling. And their hearts grow jealous. And that little green-eyed monster called envy runs away with their affections. And a significant number of such people are our teenagers. Enamored with the world. Enamored with their peers. Being seduced by the glitz and glamour of worldliness. See Asaph's progression here. He goes from self-pity to jealousy to bitterness. While he's looking at others and envying their situation, he grows bitter. Verse 21, he says of himself, My soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. Or when my spirit was embittered, or when I was grieved. He's looking at the world and looking at himself. And where that's leading him is to callousness of heart, bitterness, coldness, dryness. And he gives us a, a sort of expose of the wicked in his day. Verses 4 to 11 describe in greater detail the, the pride and the arrogance of the wicked that, that lead to these emotional responses. But we need to read these verses with bifocals. We need to see not only the emotional state of the wicked, but also the emotional state of Asaph. See what's implicit here also about his response. Verses 4 to 11, the wicked are said in verse 4 to have no struggles, no pangs unto death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They enjoy health. 
They're said to be free from trouble and burdens and ills in verse 5. The, the normal things that come upon everyone. They, they, in Asaph's opinion, seem to escape even that. They're proud and violent. They're clothed in it. Verse 6. And all of that boils over in sin and evil thoughts. Verse 7. They scoff and they threaten. They speak maliciously. Verse 8. And in their pride, their mouths lay hold to heaven itself. And they fancy themselves rulers of earth. Verse 9. And these are the things that drive Asaph to jealousy. We see his summary of the wicked in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And he's wondering, how can such people do so well? How can they be free of even the ordinary stresses of life? And implicit in this, of course, is Asaph's view of his own life. These are not just statements about others, the wicked. These are also autobiographical accounts. He's bothered by the wicked's prosperity because he views himself as burdened. He sees himself as struggling. Things are not easy for him. He's not threatening others or or trying to rule heaven and earth, but, but good things aren't coming his way. And then we see the effect of this man-centered emotion. Disconnected from the knowledge of God. Disconnected from the truth that he knows about God. See the sense of hopelessness, doubt, and futility in verses 12 and 13. Or verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. See how it causes him to exaggerate his situation. Every morning, all the day long, all you've received from this good God is strickenness and struggle. And see how this man-centered emotion, this man-centered view of his circumstances, even overthrow his devotion to God. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. See, because he doesn't apply the truth about God to his situation, he winds up wallowing in an emotional swamp that rejects the purity he knows that God rejoices in. I think the question of verse 11 sits as comfortably on Asaph's mouth as it does the wicked. I think for different reasons, for different different motivations, both the wicked and Asaph are asking this same question in verse 11. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? The wicked, because they seem to prosper for a moment in their pride, conclude that God, if He does know, can't do anything, and most likely He doesn't know. I'm ruling my own life, they say to themselves. And Asaph, looking at those same people, said, God isn't doing anything. Where are you? What are you doing? What's going on? And he despairs. He despairs. He feels hopeless. Verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me, the NIV person. The ESV, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Weariness had crept into his soul. It's oppressed and overwhelmed. That's what happens to us when our gaze is never raised above our own circumstance or above men in general. And that's what's happened to Asaph here. Now, most everyone here is a pastor or a worship leader in your local church. In some way, you're responsible for um, helping or leading or participating in leading others in the public praise of God. 
I think there's at least one thing we should note at this point about emotions that should shape how we seek to lead others in public praise. Notice, even from the onset, the full range of emotion is displayed in this song. Asaph doesn't begin with sort of happy, clappy, glad, you know, light, joyous praise of God. The first half of this psalm is taken up with whining, quite frankly. A lament, sorrow, despair, as we said. So when we're leading our people in in the praise of God, I think it's wise of us to, to consider that the people who've come through the door have come through the door with a full range of emotion. And I think it's wise of us to recognize that that emotion is God's gift to us. It's it's not something, particularly on the, if you imagine sort of emotion in our our worship as as being on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the kind of despair that we see here in Asaph's psalm, 10 being sort of an elated joy, I think we're sometimes in danger of being in a range sort of 7 to 10. You know, pretty happy to extremely joyful. I think we're in danger of of sort of overlooking 1 to 6.9. The the, the sort of emotions that we would think of as as negative or down. You know, ASAP doesn't do that. The Psalter doesn't do that. It includes in its songs... All, the entire range of God's emotion, because there's instruction that needs to happen vis-a-vis those emotions. And so I think we would be wise in our leading of our people, in the planning of our services, in the selection of songs, in our review of songs, in, in the words we speak in prefacing songs, or even in the call to worship, to, to think particularly about how the various people are coming into the room and emotionally what's happening with them. Particularly, what might their emotions be doing with regard to their love and embrace of the truth? Notice what's happening here. Asaph's emotions at this point are not being driven by the truth. Rather, his emotions are coloring what he will accept as true for himself. The train is reversed. The caboose is in front. And that's how our people enter. They they come, they hear God's word. Maybe they've been reading it in their quiet time. And sometimes it's subtle, barely even perceptible. They have an emotional response to what they read. And it shapes whether or not they accept it. I'll give you an example. A couple weeks ago in our Wednesday night Bible study, We were meditating on 1 Thessalonians 4. We're in around verse 5. And Paul says there to the Thessalonians, For I know, brothers dearly loved of God, your election. And so we camped out on the word election. Open discussion about this. What does this mean? And and one young lady, a a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed new Christian, maybe about two months, she says, Oh, I I think I know. That's great. Tell me. She says, I think think, think it means I, I chose him and then he chooses me. Hmm. Let's look at some cross references. And we look at a few and and it's obvious that God first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. And we start to see in the scriptures the various places where God in his sovereign grace has chosen broken people out of the mire of sin and made them his. And she sat there after we did that little tour of the scriptures and she looked at me, her face had changed, and, and I said, now tell me what you're feeling. She says, I don't like that. The truth of God's word was toppling her off the throne, making, pushing her out of the center of the universe. The truth of God's word was, was, was causing an emotional reaction. And what she, what she had to say was, I don't like that. Now, our people are coming into our services often, hearing the truth about God. They're believers. And they're hearing things, and, and their initial reaction is, I don't like that. Or, it's not happening for me like that. And what will happen if, if we don't address that emotion, is they will act not on the truth, but on that false emotion. And they'll be driven from the truth, 
and from an abiding with Christ to their own reserves. And this is why it leads to despair, this man-centered emotion. Just in the couple of years that I've been serving as a pastor, first at Capitol Hill, now down in the Cayman Islands, such a hard place to labor. (laughs) Bob, the invitation's in the mail, brother. (laughs) Just in those few years, I was just thinking, meditating on this passage, thinking about pastoral situations that I've encountered. I, I thought of the woman who has had five or six miscarriages. The last one in the eighth month of pregnancy. She has one son, but her heart is broken over those children lost. I'm thinking of her sitting in the congregation, sitting now in my pastoral study. She's perplexed. She is angry with God. She doesn't believe that God loves her. I think of a woman in her late 60s or 70s, early 70s, whose husband needs constant care due to a serious stroke. She's weary, exhausted, bone-tired. What happens in the public gathering to address that weariness? I think of another young woman who came into my office reduced to uncontrollable sobs because anxiety over an upcoming surgery just seizing upon her. There's a college student who burst into my office and began declaring his anger at the world even before I could look up from the email that I was composing. He was angry with all of life, the injustice of poverty and affluence living side by side with one another, a father with who was insisting upon rules in his home, in a society that judges others based on, on his mind, superficial things. He was just angry. And then there's the wife who just found her husband in an adulterous relationship with another man. She's betrayed, angry, and confused. A young woman, 18 years old, a prodigy at the top of her class in pre-med, who sat across from me and confessed that she feels nothing. Nothing. She's just numb. She has no emotion that she can describe. These are descriptions of beautiful saints that come through our church doors. People who come Sunday to Sunday. Their emotions are strong and they're raw and they're controlling them very often. The question is, do these emotions have any place in our public praise of God? I think they do. I think the psalmist here is demonstrating for us that they do. And I think if you look at the entire Psalter with this, with this range of emotion, I think over and over and over God is saying, Bring them to me. They do. I think of Jesus' words in Matthew's gospel. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, how is the comfort and the rest of the gospel experienced in the way we lead our people from Sunday to Sunday and in all of life? That's what brings us to our second point, that that God-centered emotions, moving from emotions centered on man to emotions centered on God revealed in Christ and His glorious work on the cross and His resurrection and our redemption, moving from man-centered emotion to God-centered emotion is what leads us finally to a singular love of Christ and an abiding and eternal joy as we just sung, even still, in the midst of difficulty. So the dramatic turning point of Psalm 73 is verse 17. When I thought, verse 16, how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. 
Scholars will talk about what Asaph means in terms of going into the sanctuary or what he actually saw when he went into the sanctuary. And that's a good discussion for us to have. But frankly, we see more clearly the sanctuary than Asaph did. Because we see Christ who went behind the veil and offered his blood as a sacrifice, cleansing the heavens and his people. The sanctuary that we come to, the tabernacle that we come to is Christ himself. Clothed in our humanity, tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin, so that he could become an acceptable high priest for us. It's when we come to Calvary's cross, and when we contemplate the empty tomb, and when we see him risen and seated on high, that we enter the sanctuary. We enter the experience and the truth of God that gives us a new perspective. That's what's happened with Asaph in his day. And that's what we pray is happening with us and our people when we gather to praise God. Asaph's location changed and his perspective changed. He entered the sanctuary of God and then he saw things not from a man-centered perspective, but from a God-centered perspective came to see and embrace and to know the truth of God. And his horizon expanded. He acquired divine wisdom. He acquired the ability to see or discern the end from the beginning. His problem was his focus was too short-sighted. When he began to view things from the perch of God's throne, he could see the scope and the sweep of time. He could see the end of the wicked. So Asaph sees others differently. He sees himself differently. And he sees God differently. With regard to others, in verse 2, Asaph worried about his feet slipping and losing his foothold. He was centered on himself. But when we come to verse 18, with the divine perspective fully embraced, he sees who's really slipping. In God's sight, The wicked are standing on an icy slope with high heel shoes on, sliding toward a bottomless abyss. They're not to be envied. We're not to pity ourselves who've come to the comfort of Christ. We are to mourn and to weep and to feel the danger of what it means to be outside of Christ. And we're singing in such a way, with such clarity of lyrics and, 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 and such enthrallment with the truth, that perchance, by God's grace, the wicked, seeing us lamenting over their state, might wish to turn, might wish to come from danger to safety, in Christ. Verse 20, otherwise they will vanish from the scene as fast as a dream vanishes from the mind of God. Asaph sees them differently. He sees himself differently. Verses 21 and 22, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast you. You know, when we are pitying ourselves and blaming God for what we think in our limited intelligence is injustice, we're actually proclaiming our wisdom to be higher than God's and our justice to be more just than God's. We think we have a pretty good read on things and we wonder why God hasn't come to our view. Why doesn't he do what I would do in this situation? You see, if our emotions are left unchecked by a divine perspective, it reduces us to savagery. He was a brute beast before God. When he came to see himself in the light of who God really was and what God was really doing in the plan of redemption, he recognized his creatureliness. John Calvin put it this way in the Institutes. It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he have previously contemplated the face of God 
and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. For such is our innate pride. We always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. Convinced, however, we are not if we look to ourselves only and not to the Lord also. He being the only standard by the application of which this conviction can be produced. You see what Calvin is saying there. You see what Asaph is testifying to. Man doesn't know himself until he views himself through the knowledge of God. Until that time, he lives like a brute beast, proud and arrogant. But when he sees true righteousness, when he sees glorious holiness, then he knows, then he knows the vileness of his life and the sweetness of the Savior. And so Asaph comes then to, re- to see not only others differently and himself differently, but he comes to see God differently. God is central in the judgment of the wicked. Verse 18, see there, truly you set them in slippery places. It's no accident that their life is sliding toward this abyss. God has set them there. You make them fall to ruin. How is this helpful to Asaph? How is this truth about God and his rule, his sovereignty, helpful emotionally to Asaph? How is it helpful to us? Well, if we trust that God is ruling all things, even over the wicked, doesn't it free us from vengeance and anger and bitterness? Aren't we able to leave that then to the Lord? Aren't we able to subject those raw emotions to the truth now? That we know about God. And Asaph comes to see that not only is God in control, but but God is a shepherd and provider. Verses 23 and 24. He had been moaning about nothing was happening to him but trouble. Woe is me. Verses 23 to 24 with this perspective from the sanctuary. Asaph says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Oh, what a, what a conversion. What a turnaround. What a, what a reversal of perspectives. Before it was old man, as, you know, you, you ever meet people like that? Nothing good has ever happened to them. No, you, maybe you compliment them and say, man, you know, you're looking kind of nice today. It's a nice, it's a nice suit, you know, nice, nice purple tie. And it's, man, this tie cost me $50, man. I had a new suit in six years, and I'm stretching the seam in this one, you know. Woe is me. But look at what happens to Asaph. Not that, not that his situation has gotten better compared to the wicked. Nothing materially has changed about his life. What has changed is his perspective on God and now his emotional reaction to God. Where he felt abandoned before, now he feels safe, secure, loved, guided. God has become his shepherd. He's running into God's provision. He's running to where he's safe. And that's with the Lord. How our people need to, need to be moved from. The feeling that Christians sometimes experience of abandonment and neglect and despair. To the big truth about God's sovereignty and control and love and mercy. That they might find in him a refuge and shelter. Safety. And then God is seen as the greatest treasure. Verses 25 and 26. Those questions that that John Piper has helped us to understand so wonderfully in our day. Whom have I in heaven but you? That question just lodges into the breast of the Christian. That's the profession of the Christian. That's what the heart of the Christian longs to break forth in. 
an exclusive and a singular devotion to God and Christ. Whom have I in heaven but you? What else do I want? Family's there. Health is there. A new body is there. We're free from the injustice of this world. I won't know despair anymore and and all of those things. but, But compared to you? Compared to you? I'm glad Grandma's saved. I'm glad Luther's in heaven. I'm I'm glad all these great saints will be there. Psalm 17, 15. But when I awake in my righteousness, to see you, then I will be satisfied. That is the overwhelming emotional response in heaven. An awesome satisfaction with looking into the face of Christ our Savior. In this life we esteemed Him stricken and and afflicted. We we dared not look on Him. We, We despised Him, Isaiah tells us. But in that life to come, oh how sweet the Savior's face will be to us. How radiant and glorious. He will satisfy us. Have you ever been satisfied? You know what it feels like to be satiated. Our people come into our congregations unsatisfied. They're gripped with that. The kids aren't acting right. The job is hard. My wife is nagging me about painting the bedroom. All kinds of things from the, from the honey-do list to my child has run away. All kinds of things disturbing the peace of our people. Isn't it an awesome privilege then to to be thinking about what we do in the public praise of God as as ministry, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, letting the word of Christ, Christ dwell in us richly, teaching, even by the singing, so that in the singing and the teaching, a transformation happens. Our people go from dissatisfaction to crying enough 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 in Christ what a joy and a privilege that is and that's the vision the Bible holds out for us of the Christian life being so delighted in Christ that our peace becomes unshakable and immovable and we sing it all the time In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul. This cornerstone, you know the words. And we come to that part, my comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. That's that's the movement that's happened with Asaph. Where we want our people to leave our services and, and... if I could just zoom back for a moment. The public services is one thing. I know we're referring to that as our worship. And, and it certainly is an aspect of it. But all of the Christian life is worship. So, so we're aiming to instruct and impact our people beyond Sunday morning. This is why we want our stuff to be of substance. We want to sing the rich and deep glorious truths of God. Because we won't want our people sort of happy Sunday from 11 to 12.30 and practical atheists by 6 o'clock. If we believe the, the research studies by Barna and others, the polls, staggering little time is spent in God's word and private devotion by God's people. Staggering little time. We add the statistics up, I think it's somewhere in the order of 75 to 80% of Christians, professing Christians, professing born-again Christians, do not daily meet with God in His Word. Now that means for a lot of people who come to our services, this is it. That puts a lot of pressure on the singing and the sermon. I'm trying to push all I can push into the hearts and minds of my people that they might acquire a greater taste for Christ and His Word, and that they might be sustained as they taste and see that the Lord is good. I I love you all who who have this ministry. 
what you do is vitally, vitally, vitally important for the well-being of God's sheep. I pray that you sense that and feel that, that the, that the gravity of ministering to people in their emotions grabs hold to your thinking and your heart and your practice. Because Asaph in verse 28 comes to this place. For me, it is, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, and I may tell of all your words, your works. When's the last time someone left our services? And at the doors of the church afterwards or up front or sometimes, when's the last time someone came to us and said, Oh, how good it was to be near God this morning. How good it was for me to make the Lord my refuge and to tell of his marvelous works. That's our aim. That's what we want to do with their emotions, is to transport them from whatever it is they came in with, with this singular love and devotion to Christ and sense of the goodness of God. Well, in just a couple minutes, let me end then with a few applications for helping our people move to God-centered emotion. The first thing I want to encourage us to do is to avoid, always avoid, false ways of dealing with emotion or triggering emotional response. Weak and shallow ways. There, there are three I want to suggest. First off, in our worship, in our singing, etc., let's not, let's not fall prey to denial. Let's not pretend that, that Christian lives are clean and neat. Let's not treat our people like plastic people. It, it's not like that. We, we, we don't want to sing and teach with a kind of Bobby McFerrin theology. As for all of you over 35, for those below 35, we don't want a Lion King theology. You know, you know that don't worry, be happy, Hakuna Matata. That's just not going to be helpful Monday morning. It's just not. The shelf life of that is about 30 minutes. And we don't want to fall prey to emotionalism. In other words, we, we don't want to sort of bring them into the experience as though emotion is the end. We don't want to leave them in their emotion and, and, and then sort of have emotion become this, this king, this, this fix, so that our people are bouncing from emotional experience to emotional experience. That's not how we deal with it either. And we want to avoid manipulation. We don't want to play with people's emotions so that we can have them respond in compliance with some wish we have. We want to avoid those things. And instead, secondly, we then want to address the full range of emotion, which is what we've been saying all along. We're not to be afraid of expression in worship. Weeping is good. You read the Bible the saints weep sometimes in sackcloth and ashes. I, I want that mother who's lost six kids weeping before the Lord if she needs to do that. Shouts of praise are glorious. I want that mother on her knees weeping before the Lord, standing beside her brother who's just gotten a good report on his cancer with his arms outstretched, praising God. Space for all of that. We, we want to demonstrate the full range of emotion, not for emotion's sake, so that, but so that we can bring it then to the instruction of the truth. What brings her to her knees isn't anger. What brings her to her knees is an apprehension of the mercy of God, even in the loss of those kids. And so we, we want to make room for those emotions. We don't want to be manipulative. We don't, we don't want to deny. We don't want to be afraid to sing music then in the minor key. It's not the entire diet, right? But it will address the kinds of emotions and spiritual needs of people like Asaph, as well as the proud and the wicked who need to know something of the gloom of their situation. Because they're emotionally confused and tormented. A third thing. 
related to all of the above. Let's be sure that we teach our people about suffering. You know, Christ tells a parable of the soils where the seed is sown into various people's hearts. And some people, when hardship arises, turn away. And that's staggering. That's really staggering. Because in Matthew 5, 12, 13, or thereabouts, Jesus says the path to, to blessedness, to happiness, to joy that the world is seeking comes sometimes by the road of persecution. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, when you are persecuted and blasphemed because of me. How tragic it is if in our worship all we communicate is this false prosperity theology. That if you praise God, everything goes well. No, 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 that's not true. It's not true. Christ may be pleased to glorify himself through the deepest suffering in our lives. And so in our, in our, in our worship, and our teaching, and our leading people, we want to call up this theme of suffering in particular. I think that may be one of the biggest weaknesses in Western evangelical Christianity. No theology of suffering. And what's troubling Asaph? is suffering compared to the wicked. That's what nearly causes him to stumble and slip. And that's what nearly causes our people to stumble and slip. They have no bones for suffering. A fourth thing. Help then specifically people to see that aspect of God's character and God's truth. Help them to see the character of God and the truth of God that draws them out of self-centered emotion into God-centered emotion. I love what Bob did last night. Remember we were singing one song and he just sort of stopped us. And he said, now, let's read those words. Let's sing those words again. I fear that we may not be apprehending and bringing down that truth into our lives. What an excellent way to lead us. What an outstanding way to lead us. And sometimes just with a couple of sentences of introduction to a song or a couple of sentences of introduction to a a scripture reading, we may be able to draw succinctly the connection between that self-centered emotion and that God-centered truth that helps our people sort of rise out of the clay and rise to Christ. We, we want to be skilled at do that, doing that. We want to pray to do that. We want to, we want to work on do that. If you have a, a service review, I'd encourage you to, if you don't have one, first of all, to, to have one. Regularly review your services for this kind of matter. All the kind of matter that we're talking about in this conference, the, the knowledge of God, emotions and worship, so on and so forth. We're, did we do a good job, do we think prayerfully, with the Spirit's aid, depending upon His grace, of drawing our people out of themselves and to Christ and the cross? We, we want to evaluate that and consider that. Because that's powerful. That's powerful. I think about the example of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul there is writing to the Corinthians about his suffering. It says this astounding thing that they participate with him in his suffering through Christ. That surely as the, as, the, as the sufferings of Christ overflow in their lives, so the comfort of Christ overflows in, his li- in their lives. It's a good theology of suffering. And then he comes down later around verse 9 or so of chapter 1, and he says this, describing his own suffering. We felt as though we had the sentence of death written in our hearts. You want to talk about emotional? Feeling a death sentence written in your heart that everywhere you go, death, no, real death, dogs your steps? Then he says this. This is what I think changed in his thinking. He says right after that, essentially, but we serve God who raises the dead. What power does death have over us when God, our God, the one we preach, the cross we preach, and the resurrection we preach, demonstrates that God raises the dead? You see how this specific truth of the gospel comes home to Paul and then he delights all the more in Christ. That's what we want to do with our people. 
our people who are struggling with, with cancer or, or some other physical ailment. We get a new body. The promise of the gospel is a, is a glorified, resurrected body fit for heaven that never decays. Over and over and over again, we want to grow skilled at pulling out those truths of the gospel, those promises of the gospel, and applying them specifically in the counseling room, in the public worship, in casual conversation, to the particular emotional needs and worries of our people. That they might be brought out of themselves to rejoice more deeply in Christ and the cross. That's what the psalmist does here. We should say quickly that all the psalmist is doing here is built on truth. Truth is central to our proclamation. And truth is central to how we serve our people in worship. So we want to we pour all of what we do, and we want to pour the emotions of our people through the strainer of truth so that the pulp of man-centeredness and worldliness is gathered up and tossed away, and what's left is the pure nectar of God's truth. We're drinking and nourishing ourselves. And so we want to teach our people to watch their reactions to the truth. To stop and say, what am I feeling about this? How are my feelings affecting my response to this truth? Where do these feelings lead me? We want them to be skilled at that. And this is important in our culture. Because, you know, what our culture teaches us is what we feel is true. But that's the barometer for truth. We see that in the, in the young women who come to, come to us and announce their engagement. And we, we discover after a couple of questions, they are, they are engaged to someone who's not a Christian. Perhaps it's a young woman, perhaps it's a woman in their 40s who's never been married and is fearing that they, they will never be married. And they're, they're, their feelings is driving them away from the truth. And so driving them away from what is good. We're in a culture and a time where if you ask someone what they think about something, they're more likely to give you a list of feelings about it. And so we want to be skillful at helping people apply the truth to their feelings and having their feelings being driven then by the truth and not the other way around. We want to address, number six, non-Christians and Christians in their emotional state. I think Asaph gives us a pattern for doing that. Verse 27, Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Verse 28, But for me, you see the distinction? It is good to be near God. One of the most helpful things we can do for our non-Christian visitors is to make it clear in our preaching, in our singing, our teaching, what applies to them and what doesn't. We, we want to make it clear in our application of the gospel that if they have not turned from their sins and trusted wholly in Christ, then they are outside of Christ, still in their sins. The wrath of God abides upon them. And unless they rush to Christ, they'll perish in their sins and will know eternal agony. Address them specifically. And then call them to repentance and faith. Serve them by being clear with them. Serve them by being clear with how their emotions, their reactions to Christ and the cross may be imperiling their soul. I think that's a good way for us to serve non-Christians and at the same time serve Christians. It's easy then to remind them of what Christ has saved us from. And to encourage them to delight in this great salvation. And finally, since we are those who are tasked with leading others in worship, let me suggest that we pay close attention to our emotions. Asaph was a choir director. He had your job. Mine. By the way, that Time Magazine article I mentioned, they did a survey of, of people who, who consistently rate sort of their joy in their work, who rates their work the highest. Interestingly enough, pastors were number one on that list. I wonder if that's evident in the way that we minister among our people. I wonder if that survey is accurate or if there are a lot of lying pastors. 
So are you like those happy pastors in that survey? Or are you more like Asaph in verses 1 to 16? Are you attending to your heart? Are you getting help from others around you with the care of your heart, with the inspection of your emotions, with the dissection of your your emotional response to the truth? That's necessary for us to lead God's people well. And not just for that pragmatic reason. It's necessary for us personally to delight in Christ our portion, our inheritance, ASAP describes here. That we might delight among it. That we might be examples of delighting in Christ. Examples of of moving from self-centered emotions that lead to despair to a God-centered devotion to Christ and eternal joy. I pray that that's how the Lord would lead us all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Asaph. We thank you, Lord, for inspiring him to set this psalm in print. And we thank you, Lord, that in the grace of your spirit, the gifting of your spirit, you caused him to be transparent, to be gritty and real, to lay bare before us his emotion, that we might be instructed by his example and instructed by your spirit. Help us, Lord, to lead your people well, that we might delight in the truth, be caught up in the glories of your salvation. Do this, we pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Thabidi Anyabwile, which was given at the Worship God 2008 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.